0: What you looking at? I don't know, I'm trying to figure it out. I'm gonna feed you my foot. I wish you would. I'll meet you down back by the wood pile. You hang out in the corner back by the wood pile? Yes, sir. It's the coolest place ever. Word, let's be friends. Cool by me. I'm Spung Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. Today we're going to talk Black American history, back by the woodpile, and to help us with that is this episode's guest, Kalanji McClellan, a photographer who loves weaving captivating stories through his camera's lens. He's both a student of history and has been a professor of the said topic, he having lived a little of his own history in his effort to keep the discipline respectable, of which we'll get to later in the interview. What are some highlights from black history that that are some of your favorites and you wish more people knew about?
1: Actually, I think one of the individuals I would like to know more about is Hubert Harrison. He's called the Black Socrates okay. of the Harlem Renaissance. He was one of those individuals that um, actually, you know, he challenged the status quo, so to speak, but unfortunately because of his non-religious beliefs, um his ability not to bite his tongue, he was kind of excluded, for example, one of the things he would say to a lot of individuals is that you're in church singing about being white as snow, where I'd rather be black and go to hell at least I know that you know I'll be with my relatives <laughs> oh, uh, so, but he was just fort right, right. Um, you know, he challenged you know Marcus Garvey, he challenged W.B. Du Bois, on his, you know, wow. a lot of folks, because, for example, when W.B. Du Bois decided to start NAACP, he called him out and called him basically a hypocrite. You know, you called Booker T. Washington a hypocrite for taking money from old, rich, white conservatives, mm-hmm. but you're doing the complete same, but only with rich, white liberals, mm-hmm. for essence, and you're the only black person, pretty much, you know, that's visible in this organization, whereas we had the Niagara Movement which was for us, by us. And you decided to let your Eagle drive you. know drive you, mm-hmm. And he went that way. So and he this guy had no friends. No. <laughs> Basically. And actually, Booker T. Washington ruined his life. Um, really? Because Booker T. Washington was kind of like, you know, equivalent of J. Edgar Hoover to a certain extent because he had this infrastructure that kind of kept tabs. And something happened, and it's still kind of, you know, trying to figure out how. But what happened is that... He did some things that kind of, you know, challenged Booker T. Washington and things like that. And he wound up losing his job at the post office. And that was like, you know, the... He thinks it was a conspiracy against him? Um, like, I've talked to an expert. Um, I can't think of his name off the top of my head. But he said he actually did see documents that kind of led to that. Basically, he lost his job at the post office. That was you know, probably one of the best jobs you can get at that mm-hmm. time. Regardless of you know Your racial race. ethnic background, because it's a government job, like all government jobs, got good getting benefits. Yeah, but after, it's impossible to get fired. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he lost his job. You know, he was angry, of course, and he was just not even more not of a nice guy. But he died rather young. I can't remember. He was, I think, he might have been in his 40s maybe when he died. So when you call him a Black Socrates, you're Speaking
0: more in the sense that Socrates was challenging the power of his day.
1: Yeah, it was actually John G. Jackson, J.G. Jackson. There was another black scholar that actually referred to him as the Black Socrates. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and they actually did a little book, a little blurb on him. It's also, he was one of the first ones to be on the actual step ladder. You know, you would hear about Harlem and when so people would be up there and shouting yeah. their peace. He was one of the people that would actually do that. Street preaching, but just without the religion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it was J.A. Rogers. What's interesting is that he was very fair-skinned, and he had this book. And the basis of the book is about a debate between this white senator and this black porter, who was twice as educated, but because, you know, America at that time, he can only be a porter. And so it was this intellectual debate, Mm -hmm. you know, where the porter was pretty much far superior. And so anyway, Hubert Harrison convinced the author since he kind of can pass for white to go ahead and use that to his advantage when he goes sell the books. Unfortunately, he was washed out um history. Another person is Arturio Schomburg, who's the founder of the um, Schomburg Institute in New York, basically the Black Library of Congress. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's through him that a lot of black intellectuals, quote-unquote, can trace their academic pedigree, because it's through him that you had Dr. John um, Hendrick Clark. He also got... Dr. Yusuf uh, ben Yakinen and a bunch of others. Mm-hmm. you know, Because it was during that time frame, um, at the turn of the century and everything else, where you know people go stay at the YMCA and things of that nature, and the library was the epicenter for everything. You had your history clubs and everything. It's a lot of men mm-hmm. you know, leaving the South and things like that, and they would just kind of convene to that area. He actually did an essay that influenced John Herrick Clark, which was you know, one of the black intellectuals for a long time. And it was called The Negro Digs Up His Past. And it's so, and the story goes from John Henry Clark is that that inspired him because he didn't know he had a past. You know, he jumped the freight, went to New York. He was like, I'm gonna see this great man. And he went to the library, and the secretary was like, Oh, yeah, he's upstairs. You know, and he's like, Oh, what? I'm just here for his
0: book. (laughs) You know, and then
1: so he goes upstairs, and he's like, I wanna learn everything about my history. And what Schomburg said is learn everything about their history, and then you understand where the missing pieces are when you go back and look at your history. Hmm. And so, um, and that's what he did. But, you know, there was like all sorts of individuals at that time frame. You know, W.B. Du Bois popped up at one point or another through there. But he was pretty much the epicenter, you know, and he started collecting all this stuff Mm -hmm. about, you know, African history, African-American history. Mm -hmm. But his name would throw people off because he's, you know, I think he's Puerto Rican, Afro-Puerto Rican. But, you know, he has Ontario schomburg you know, oh, right. and it just throws people off. Right. Oh, yes, I'm going, and my state is going with me. On to glory, on to glory, where my love was waiting for me. When I, get there, when I get there, all my troubles will be over. I'm going to walk right in
0: and make myself at home. Oh, yes, I'm going to walk right in and make myself at home. Let me ask you this. You mentioned Booker T. Washington and W. D. B. Du Bois. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because in the Indiana, you know, there's a county, Du Bois yeah. <laughs> County, and same spelling, different pronunciation. Anyway, uh, it comes up a lot that those two were not a fan of each other. Or if you were black at a certain time, you had to choose sides. I've heard it presented that way. So do you want to talk about that? And maybe the myth
1: of that or the truth of it? Uh, I think what it was is just it's just hubris. Booker was coming from nothing uh, because basically Booker, he was in slavery. and you know he grew up behind enemy's lines, so to speak. So his mindset approaching certain things were a little bit different. Whereas with W B. Du Bois, he grew up up north, East Coast. He was in school with diverse crowd, you know integrated you know integrated school. He could openly debate. And so he didn't really understand about being black until he came to Fisk. And that's whenever he realized people, when they go into town, they had to carry guns and all this stuff. But W.B. Du Bois said something in one of his last interviews. He said that the difference between him, and I, I could be this wrong, but the gist is pretty much you know the same, is that Booker felt the lash. Yeah, there was some animosity. You had two different generations. It's more generational than all understanding. Right. And I think people didn't understand that... When Booker, he pretty much was influenced from what I've read and from the way I've noticed how his actions were by those of the the pioneers of the Industrial Revolution, you know, the Vandenbergs, um, the Rockefellers, Carnegie. Because if you look at those guys, they actually controlled wealth and resources. You know, they didn't have to vote because they controlled the vote. Mm -hmm. And he was trying, the way I see him pattering himself when he was talking about don't necessarily vote, because even in his books, he talked about how becoming elected official, it's kind of shallow if you don't have economic power behind you. Mm-hmm. They can remove you any time. Right. It's like they can vote you in. This is Booker T. Yeah, Booker T. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if you don't control resources, if you don't do certain amount of things, kind of be a nice little interesting act at a cocktail party. You know, if it wasn't for Booker T. Washington, you wouldn't have TSU. Because he built... The interesting about Booker T. Washington, I like, is that... He didn't really go into debt when it came to building uh, the Tuskegee Institute. You know, he took out a small loan to kind of get things going, but after that, he was done. He basically figured out how to make bricks from the mud in the school. And I've always said is that I probably wouldn't last at that school because you actually have to work. Right. And uh, People
0: forget that. A lot of
1: universities, you had to help on the farm, the university farm. My grandfather did that. You know, and his whole thing was, you know, you're going to work. You know, you want a school, you're going to build a school. Mm-hmm. I guess I would have just been like an ignorant sharecropper or something. But also, he recruited the best in Bryce. He actually reached out to uh, WB Du Bois. And just the timing was off. Because at, at the time, Du Bois was in Atlanta. The problem with Du Bois, I always say, is that he was driving a Lamborghini in a residential zone. I mean, he was probably one of the smartest men in the world. And he knew it. Yeah, I mean, he knew it. I mean, this man was insanely brilliant. You know, he did infographics by hand, the calculations by hand, you know, what the Philadelphia Negro research. So he did a lot. But uh, what happened was his son died um, because I can't remember what illness they had. But because of the racial issues, the racial practices of Atlanta, he couldn't get the aid. Mm -hmm. And so his wife wanted to leave the South. Wife was like, I'm done. You know, we lost a kid. Let's go. But Booker offered him some insane amount of money. Maybe teach two or three classes. His only thing was, do what you want to do. Just don't get the school burned down. (laughs) You know, because we're in in Alabama. Yeah, plus I put all these bricks up myself. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, you know. And so, but timing was off. All right. You know, and of course, the boys went his way. Yeah, they had some issues. And I think it was more of a miscommunication. It's like, They didn't really know how to talk because Booker was kind of one of the first premier educators coming out of, you know, bondage. So there was no blueprint. Mm -hmm. And then unfortunately, and into culturally or I would say geographically speaking, they were also a little different, you know. Mm -hmm. Even nowadays, if you get somebody from rural Alabama to meet somebody from New York City, they wouldn't be able to communicate with one another. So a friend
0: of mine had described the way it was presented to him that you know Booker T was about staying in your place and Du Bois was about you know challenging the system. But and I I never saw that as to be the case really because Booker T he had a Zen way of protesting so to speak or at least getting stuff done. I don't think he was as um, provocative maybe is the word or defiant. But he
1: could compost a lot. Yeah, he was playing the shell game. There was a guy running from a lynch mob, and they ran to Booker T. Washington, and he speared him the guy out, and basically set him up with his doctor, got him out of town. And when the mob showed up, and he's like, "I wouldn't do that. I sent him out. Yeah, I got because ki- you know he had kids there. Yeah, you know and they can at that time they could literally go on campus and kill everybody, sure. and nobody would do anything because his whole thing was is that. You can't monologue, you know, like a bad villain in a movie. You can't tell your plan at the very end. So, because the thing that's so funny is that he, when he would say, we don't want to vote, we want jobs. We just want to, like, become farmers and do all this other stuff. But at that time, he understood that if you controlled resources, you actually have economic power. Also, the thing I was interesting is that he hired the best and brightest. He hired the first African American to graduate from MIT, do help with the architecture and also do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. So he would recruit a lot of individuals and as well... So he
0: wasn't a dictator.
1: Nah, nah. He, he just did things on a sly. Mm-hmm. You know, like I see, he just didn't monologue what he would do. Yeah. And there was one paper that he did write where he briefly talked about how you had a lot of these individuals wanting to go to these Ivy League schools, but yet you're not learning who you are. You're learning European history, you know, in effect. But yet you can't take care of your community, you can't do this, you know, and he, you know, and he also understood that not everybody is going to be like a PhD going off door things. You need a balance. Mm-hmm. You need the guy, you need the academic as well as you need the guys to till the field mm-hmm. and you need to have them come in balance. But again, he didn't understand, I don't think he could convey the message and then too, possibly hubris also took over because at one time he became one of the most powerful individuals in in the, in the, in the nation in the same token, as I said before, W.B. Du Bois, he became, to a certain extent, you know, very influential. But when it comes to the end, you don't see W.B. Du Bois' as a legacy as you see Booker T. If you see a TSU, if you see any kind of agriculture, industrial, and black university, they were done by the influence of the Tuskegee Method. Mm-hmm. So you'll get that over and over again. People don't realize it. Now many times when you're blue, you will miss my hug and kiss. When your new love quits and turns to gold. If you make your own bed hard, don't you call on the Lord. Cause he's promised you shall reap just what you sow.
0: I remember there was a time that they were some people, especially in the
1: the boys camp, were trying to purge Brooker T from black history even yeah it's like uh, even now it's like well they really watered down martin Luther the king for the longest time they would try to erase malcolm x or even the black panther party mm-hmm. you know and they would give you more of a watered down version of mm-hmm. of martin Luther king generational they just don't understand yeah. and a lot of people don't know history yeah. you know i always tell people if you really listen to martin he was just as radical as malcolm he would always reference the pharaoh He would always reference the Egyptian, you know, he would always reference the Hebrew slaves and Pharaoh. And if you really, really look at what Moses or what God did through Moses, it wasn't really good for the home team. It was not a pretty thing. Like I have the dream speech when he said, you gave us a promissory note and we're here to collect. All the other stuff was later, you know, like the children and so forth and so forth. So people won't get riled up. Even with the Black Panther Party, a lot of individuals don't know that people didn't really embrace them entirely because... They worked with everybody, you know. They, they they worked with whites. They worked with, you know, the LGBT. But their thing was is that you have your own tribes. We have our own, you know, right. you deal with your community. Were, but we'll come together for the major. But we cannot work together if our house is not clean. They had a form of resegregation in some ways. Yeah, to a certain extent. But the thing was is that they understood when they looked in the community, drugs were real bad. They wanted to get rid of a lot of the drugs. Uh, kids were going to school hungry, so they had a free food program. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one town, I think it was in North Carolina, they actually had an ambulance service, and they had everybody trained as an EMT because ambulances wouldn't come to the black community. I seem to remember that the Black Panthers took a
0: real hit with Huey Newton because of his you know, criminal activity and using the Panthers to do it.
1: Yeah, I think later on, after the fact, like in the 70s, yeah. Um, the problem, I think, with the Panthers is that they got too big, too fast. They were more of a community-based, and originally one time they were going to partner with the SNCC because they were global, whereas they knew how to get in the community. Mm-hmm. But they just didn't have the infrastructure, and they kind of. And plus, the leadership kept getting arrested. Key leadership right. kept getting arrested, and kind of created this imbalance mm-hmm. um, to kind of keep the status quo. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, towards the '70s, you know, the, the CoIntel did its job by infiltrating um creating dissension Um, unfortunately some turned to drugs i mean newton had some of his own people killed that that didn't go along with his
0: program i mean yeah it's it, it reminds me of just kind of animal farm effect everything kind of starting off for the somewhat right reasons
1: yeah yeah i mean you know like i said towards the end i mean he had some serious issues but you know he was able to get clean and sober he wound up getting a phd in sociology or something Mm -hmm. like that which is interesting nobody really knows but his book i really like is called revolutionary suicide and it was based on the principle of uh, when they look at the inner city they notice this high rate of suicide Mm -hmm. and he called that reactionary you know because those who turn to external forces who cave into external forces they turn to some self-destructive means where that's taking Mm -hmm. their life turn to drugs or whatever and To him, he called revolutionary suicide is that you fight against those forces, regardless of the outcome. You know, so he is always going to be reactionary or revolutionary. His backstory is fascinating, too, because he actually was taking law classes and things like that because he wanted to be a better criminal. (laughs) Uh, But eventually, like I said, he eventually formed the Black Panther Party and they had a lot of things um, that they were trying to do. And the whole notion of them with guns and stuff. There was a lot of police brutality. Mm -hmm. And what would happen is that they would show up. And at that time, you can have a rifle as long as the round was not in the chamber. Kind of pointless. Yeah, you know, so, you know, they would show up and they knew the law. And so when when they show up, when they see a cop harassing an individual, they would show up. The cops, you can't have the gun. They say, according to California, blah, blah, blah. This Mm -hmm. is this. And he goes, all right, if you can try to engage me, then I have every right. Unfortunately, that kind of piece gets left out. They think they went around, shot cops, did everything else. But police brutality was rampant, you had a lot of poverty, and they were trying to offer a balance. And like they had good intentions. Unfortunately, they didn't have the necessary resources or the infrastructure to keep a balance.
0: You mentioned about the guns. Now, Ida Wells, she brings this up in Southern Horrors. The the racist whites, one of the first things they wanted to do was disarm the blacks yeah, so, yeah. so they could run rampant. And she praises uh, the the black folks in Paducah, Kentucky, just down the road from here, because they didn't give up their arms. And mm-hmm. they end up doing a lot better
1: because of, basically, peace through strength. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's that old analogy is... If I have a gun, you have a stick, mm-hmm. then you're going to be out of luck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll come in and just go in your house and put my feet up and eat your sandwich. <laughs> and, you know, we got guns and you don't. If you got a gun mm-hmm. you know, and I have one, mm-hmm. we have something equal to lose. Yeah. So it's like we're going to come to the table. There's yeah. no need for bloodshed. I mean, granted, World War One was a complete opposite of that, mm-hmm. you know, but... Uh, it's sad but that's the
0: human condition
1: yeah and- we have to be on the same playing field you know mm-hmm. to come to the table to come to an accord so to speak right um, and that's why i've always looked at when folks always ask me you know am i going to go and protest you know when the skinheads or whatever they came and everything it's like they're not coming to my neighborhood they go to safe areas now when they go to the south side of chicago then i'll give them some respect yeah, You know, I mean, if you go to some barrio, <laughs> or if you go to like mm. East Los Angeles, then I'm like, okay, you actually got heart. Okay, mm. but you're going to these safe spaces. And I always tell people, just take their pictures. They're not hiding their faces anymore. They're bold. Mm. Figure out who they are. I mean, millennials know how to work all the facial recognition software. Find out who they are, hit them financially, mm. and that's it. But, you know, going out there yelling and, you know, Trump love hate or whatever the heck it is it's counterproductive because most of them are suit and ties one minute they're out there in their tiki torches and shouting screaming or whatever but then the next minute they're in their brooks Brothers suit or they could be your doctor okay i've had another guy
0: on it was talking about where in the county that i live there was a compound nazi supposedly i mean that the flag is still sitting there even though it's been shut down more or less but most of them were had been in prison and that's where they got Recruited, mm. and they had no place to go, and these people took them in. I don't think any of them were businessmen. I mean, they were pretty low on the the food chain, and I think it was just out of desperation. They can't get jobs as, as
1: ex-cons, you know, especially mm. when
0: you end up getting those tats, like the the spider webs oh, or yeah. whatever
1: they did. Yeah, because I remember when I was in the active duty, mm-hmm. and um I actually saw an individual walk past me with white supremacist tattoos, and it was the strangest thing. But I had somebody had to, you know, a lot of them, some go to the military because you get free training mm-hmm. for the upcoming race war. You know. When's it's,
0: that scheduled again? I, I
1: have I, no I, idea. I to put that in my calendar. I know, I know. I, I just laugh at this all the time. and Yeah, I mean, you do have those who have been radicalized, so to speak. But then you have those who can code switch. You know, you have that brain trust. Mm-hmm. But I always say, figure out who they are. You know, if you can figure out who they are, not to retaliate mm-hmm. physically, but if you can hurt them financially... You can stop a lot of flow, but unfortunately... Yeah, there's a lot of movements that are
0: artificially kept afloat by wealthy people that think they're doing the right thing.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. like like to um, W.B. um benefit. He did a book about post-reconstruction, and he was talking about, at one point, poor whites and poor blacks were kind of aligning themselves because he understood that they both were in the same boat. But the um, establishment... Because I always tell people that... The Civil War was a war of the 1%, if you really look at it, because it was to keep the plantation owners in power. (laughs) It's like, that's why I never understood those who, like, want to celebrate Southern pride. You're celebrating an elitist culture. Right. Because... They had no use for poor whites. Yeah, it's like, you know, you were the buffer. You were middle management.
0: Well, I think that's why you see that if you look at the actual there are counties in Tennessee where we sit that that sided with the Union Knoxville they sided with the Union they for might the most have part, I think so. in fact, I think Lincoln tried to send an army in there to to kind of carve it out, yeah, but, yeah. you know there were poor whites complaining that it's a rich man's war yeah
1: and you, know, you know that's what it was I mean. Yeah. You know, people, and I hear, you know, whites say, well, I didn't own a slave and it's not about slavery. Yeah, it was about slavery. It was about keeping the plantation owners in check.
0: Yeah, I did a whole paper on this and it's clearly about slavery. Yeah, I mean, I, I have Jefferson Davis saying exactly that. I mean, yeah, exactly. And, that whole states right thing that argument didn't come about until later until after the war was over that that's what they tried to spin history a little bit oh so. yeah
1: definitely you know but you know you look at the core of it it was about slavery it may not be about the poor white guy mm-hmm. but it was about the rich folks who had like hundreds mm-hmm. and hundreds of slaves they didn't want to pay a poor white you no know, money but W.B. Du Bois talked about how you had an alignment but unfortunately you had those um, elements that wanted to create dissent You know, because a lot of the, you know, African-American, a lot of former enslaved individuals, they came out of the gate running because a lot of them were, well, not all, but some were trained as craftsmen. So once the the yoke was off and they were able to do certain things, they were actually able to surpass a lot of, you know, poor whites and they were able to stoke those fears. And unfortunately... It created discord.
0: That's what they say the hatred actually began. I've heard it argue that hatred of blacks didn't really occur until after the Civil War because of not only resentment of Reconstruction and, and also all the loss of property and mm-hmm. life from the war, but also because now poor whites, they lost big
1: uh, oh, yeah. from and, the job market. And, and then and, unfortunately, uh, they gave them a good, healthy dose, Kool Aid dose of, well, the stuff they used for slavery. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, it just flipped the switch and right. progressed, unfortunately. And to be honest, it just um, snowballed. Would it be different if Lincoln would have survived? Don't know. It might have been a lot better to a certain That's extent. That's what they
0: say. I think this is correct in saying that his plans for Reconstruction was not what ended up happening. Right, because I mean... It I, yeah. was it Johnson afterwards who... Just pulled up stake and said, okay. Com- well, completely messed it up. and started using it for political
1: reasons. And then, unfortunately, we wind up getting, like you said, this mythology of you know, which was um, of the South, this romanticized version of the mm. plantation owners and, you know, the, the quote-unquote darkies, you know, mm. singing and singing dancing, happily. and just loving everything and the poor whites living in some weird Gentile-like fantasy. Yeah. And then eventually it came to, and of course, it was cemented with, I call it the races' Avengers, Birth of a Nation. Oh, yeah. You know, that... That film, yeah. I watched it once, and because it's a three-hour silent movie, Mm -hmm. I can't do it again. Yeah, it's (laughs) grueling. Can I tell you a funny story about that? Okay, so when I had
0: spun my record shop, and we rented movies too, I kept getting film students asking me, hey, do you have Birth of a Nation? We're supposed to watch it for class. And they also asked for the the Lenny Riffenstahl, um, The Power of Will, The Will will to Power, whatever it's called, the, the Nazi propaganda film i was like what you gotta watch what and i didn't understand that i guess as far as filmmaking goes in spite of the hate that's behind those the messages that are behind those films they are important to film history and i was like well i'm not carrying that i can tell you that well then some black friends came in and said hey do you have birth of a nation i'm like what yeah we want to rent it and uh, we get high and watch it because it's hilarious I'm like, you gotta be kidding me! I said, well, okay, tell you what, I'll buy it and have it for my store. But if someone gives me crap about it, you guys gotta back me up. And they said, yeah, no problem. And so I got it. And one day I watched. It. Of course, it, I watched it over like three or four nights because, like you said, it's so long. I, I saw the parts they were talking about that they laughed about because in the Tennessee Senate, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it shows black folks like they're senators. They've been elected after the the Civil War, and they're barefoot. They got. Their feet up on the on the desks. They're eating fried chicken and throwing like the bones in mm-hmm. the corner and all that kind of thing. And apparently it's a thing. I, I don't know if you know this in in, in the pot smoking black culture to watch that while you're high. Oh wow, uh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, maybe it would have helped the film. But yeah, no. I but say. for folks listening, you know, it was uh, was it D.W. Griffith? It's one of the first full length
1: films. Yeah. that was made. And he before actually, that, they were just short films. And that, and, uh, interesting enough, he actually contributed to. He was instrumental in getting that nursing home for all the not-so-famous actors. You know that the nursing home in L.A.? Actors who uh-huh. may not be, say, Al Pacino, mm-hmm. but yet they can get a place to stay. I and mean, he was instrumental behind it because him and a few other people said we need to like start giving to these individuals who yeah. make us look great. I've but, heard
0: also that people say that if you're going to watch Birth of a Nation, you need to watch another film he made, which was kind of a to show... He was more dimensional than that film shows. A film
1: called intolerance. I know Woodrow Wilson showed it in the White House the and White said House, that yeah. was basically gave it the stamp of approval. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's it's true, but this quote is attributed
0: to Wilson that birth of a nation was writing history with lightning.
1: It's very fascinating because I watched it. Yeah, I call it the racist Avengers because it was just kind of well, like, yeah, it's a it's a vengeance movie. Yeah, you know, it's like you know, you had you know these blacks, you know, assaulting southern womanhood, mm-hmm. and then the clan got together like some superhero group yeah. to you know straighten the South up. <laughs> she just picked up this book I still haven't finished it yet which one's this it's called Rope and Faggot Mm -hmm. and it's done by Walter White and Walter White is an interesting guy because he basically looked white and um but he was not he was you know black and he went to go study the lynchings in the south you know he can go and just stand there like I'm looking at you Mm -hmm. but nobody would know to document what was going on and actually write the horrors and although some people would out him and he would have to get spirited out but um there were some horrific things in it, and I think I stopped reading it when I got to the point when you know this mob was looking for this gentleman, and he was not in the house. And so they took his pregnant wife or somebody pregnant, took her out, basically cut the baby out, set her on fire, Golly. stomped on the baby. It, it just, once I read that part, I was like, I got to put this book down right. because <laughs> I will have to lock myself in the closet and not see anybody for a while. Uh, But he went and documented all this stuff because he can literally pass. I mean, if you even see a picture of him, you wouldn't even know. There's another guy I would love to know more about just because I wouldn't know how to respond. If I see somebody who, you know, racially speaking, we're in the same class Mm -hmm. and see them being harmed. And I just can't do anything. I'm just sitting there looking at this horrific thing. And then... You know, watching when they do men, they cut off the genitals or they'll like pose with the, you know, charred body right. or all this. Make weird a postcard thing. out of it. Yeah, make a postcard out of it. And he would smile, right. you know, and he would also talk about people turning into a picnic. And he said it was generation. He goes, yeah, the first time they did it. Yeah. You know, people were like, OK, this is not really right. Yeah. Then by the time you get like, you know, you no, know, down the line, everybody's like, hey, let's go and watch them. And then again, it's almost like in Nazi Germany. You know, afterwards, people were like. Oh, you know, you just don't understand the time. and Or we were, we just got caught up. Regardless of what you look like, you're both from the same species.
0: Did you ever see the film Pinky?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was
0: about a, a girl who was black but looked white. Yeah. And I guess... we got that on the shelf. Yeah, it's a good, good little film. I guess she didn't have any problems when she went to school in the city because they didn't know she was black. But when she came back to visit her mom, you know, she had to... Kind of resume her place. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's like even for myself. I guess the older I get, the darker I get. And but when I was younger, in my twenties, my eyes were more almond shaped, and I was a little bit fair. People used to think I was like AmerAsian of some sort. When I was in Hong Kong, these ladies who were Filipino treat me like the little brother. They kept calling. I didn't know at the time, but they kept calling me this is something in Tagalog. I forgot what it was. But when I talked to an individual, I knew. He said, "Oh, it means chocolate dip Filipino." They think you're mixed, <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh, okay." That but, sounds delicious. You know, yeah, it was just like, oh, okay, It's not gonna be my stage name? But then, when I, <laughs> you know. But when I went to Japan, I was treated like garbage. And again, I'm like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. And then uh, somebody was like, oh, they take your part Japanese. They don't. They they frown upon that around mm-hmm. at that particular time. And I'm like, oh. So it was kind of interesting. Even growing up, when I was growing up, people would wanted to. Uh, fight me because they thought I knew martial arts or something crazy uh, like that. You don't have a drop of Asian blood in you? No, but I have... Majority of my DNA is from Benin, mm-hmm. uh, from that area, the Togo area, being a lot of them, if you look, have almond-shaped eyes. Because, you know, I would always wonder, you know, mm-hmm. even when my kids were born, and I'm looking at them and, you know, I knew like uh, when my second oldest son was born, he was fair-skinned, had very, you know, almond-shaped eyes, and we actually had a, a Korean doctor who delivered him and he looked at my son and looked at me and looked at my son and looked at me again. It's like, yeah, it's my kid. If it came out any other way, I might be questioning, but yeah, trust me, it's my kid, you know. The mayor of Harlem says he'll be there to give those boys a helping hand. Yeah, man. Oh, yeah, man. When Hollywood goes black and tan. Old Bob Howard made a promise to latch on to that baby grand. Yeah, man. Oh, yeah, man. When Hollywood goes black and tan. In
0: American history, a lot of times, black folks' contribution has been left out for maybe at one point racist reasons, and nowadays, maybe it's left out by, I would say, some on the hard left that don't show any kind of positive thing in black history, but that's probably another discussion, but there also has become this phenomenon of, I guess I would call faux black history, Mm -hmm. or stuff that's just made up, and... I've heard it, some call it Afrocentric. I don't know if that's the
1: really correct word. But first of all, kind of talk about that and, and what you know of it. Uh, I mean, some of the things I've heard, people would say that we would get, we get some kind of powers from our melanin. The more melanated you are, the more... Yeah, and this stuff is your, being taught in some schools. Yeah, some you yeah, have some professors that come in and then teach that, and, and it affects your pineal gland. It enhances your whatever. So, what's your superpower? I have no idea what my superpower is, <laughs> okay. except for I don't the even ability
0: know. to collect books.
1: Yeah, collect books, toys.
0: I'm staring at like just I'm surrounded by. I hope this shelf doesn't fall down on me because I'll be in trouble.
1: Yeah, it's like I got books, records, <laughs> and toys. Oh my! Yeah, and this whole thing about whenever they say the Romans are the Greeks stole from the Egyptians. They learn. You know, and they even mention that they learn. Um, it's just years later, they kind of tainted the story. I mean, you can't say Hippocrates is the father of modern medicine when the oldest medical document is surpasses his birth date. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of
0: this is legitimate.
1: Yeah, I mean, some of it's legit, but some of the things like the, you know, the melanated things, getting your pineal gland or... You know, whites are more prone to barbarity, or, you know, being barbaric and Mm -hmm. evil or whatever. I heard one
0: recently, a new one, that black folks have been to Mars already. Yeah. Do you know that one?
1: Well, I know that in the, I think it's one of the non-traditional religious groups talked about us coming from Mars. And, you know, and apparently I guess some scientists created a race of, you know, white folks who were... You know, basically just crazy. Basically, they took. Is this the
0: the Jewish scientist? Because I've heard that one as well. I think that's something that Elijah Muhammad used to teach. Might have been.
1: You know, basically, he just took, you know, one black person and kept regressing their DNA or whatever their pigment or what have you to the point where they got a white person. Mm -hmm. And that white person was, you know, crazy. Like genetic garbage. Yeah, it was the berserker. It was like the Vikings on steroids. that might explain a lot about my life, but go ahead. And of course, you know, they banished him in the Caucasus Mountains. Then apparently Moses yeah. came and showed him how to walk erect and stop eating, mm-hmm. like, raw meat and brought him out of the Caucasus Mountains. And life is good. So I want to talk about you were in a situation. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was at this one school I taught at. And, a university? Yeah, university level. And we had one professor, and he brought in this one lady, and it was nepotism. She
0: was a family member? Of some sort or friend?
1: I'm not quite sure, but I do know when she brought in her kid, it looked awfully a lot like that professor, according Ooh. to the people. But, you know, hey, he was a closeted polygamist. Okay. Um, I did try to track this guy down, and then, like, apparently, well, he said he graduated from Utah in the 70s, and he's a black guy. Now, a black guy in the 70s from the University of Utah, you shouldn't be hard to find. Yeah. But I couldn't find him so I don't know. <laughs> Utah's not known for their black population. No, no, it's like, you know, maybe population .05. Right. But anyway, one of the books that they were teaching is that it talked about how there's this white conspiracy to emasculate the men with homosexuality through prison, and they were trying to get me to use the book. I didn't use it. Okay, so you're a teacher at the at the university, and this guy is in charge of the department at this point? he was influential because the other person who actually had more seniority was off doing research for his stuff. Mm. So he kind of became the ad hoc person. Sure. And so he was like, we're going to do this book. And I was like, no, you know, granted I was passive aggressive. They gave me the book. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, whatever. And I just toss it in there. Actually, I taught maybe like from two pages to say that I did teach from the book. You know, kind of one of those things, how to use the rules. I did teach from the book. Booker T would be proud. (laughs) Okay, there you go. And so, uh, but I tossed it, and then another incident, um, again, this professor, he was like, in this. I don't even know how old this man is, because judging if he graduated in 1970, he should be damn near 90, you know, in 2000, mm-hmm. but yet he was 70, so I don't know, I really don't so know. So it's
0: possible he didn't even have a degree, and he somehow fooled the university in, into... Somehow
1: another, he could have, like, made able a doctor stuff up, mm. because, you know, I've even asked, you know, and they're like, we haven't seen any, he has nothing published, nothing whatsoever. Was he well-liked
0: by the students?
1: Um, he was well-liked because all he did was show videos. Oh. And he would allow students
0: to teach the class. See, that's so he, terrible. That, that, I mean, I'm sure that, that's a whole other subject about black education and, and making it seem like a joke. But go ahead.
1: Then So anyway, they showed a video one time. And I knew what was going on because one of the students came in. And anytime they used the words, we're going to go deep. We're, we're really deep into it. And so, of course, deep um, in the BS or? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, you know, I, I'm OK, I'm going to go and I'm going to go and just jump off the edge and go into this like chasm. Uh-huh. And so I go talk to him and I say, oh, deep, really? And he goes, yeah, you know, I, we learned something. And I say, oh, really? They literally looked at me with a straight face and said, Christianity is used to promote homosexuality. Hmm. So I was like, "Wow, that came out of left field." I've heard a lot of interesting yeah. things. They're like the last holdouts. You know, <laughs> I'm like, saying you know, the homosexuality is wrong, but go ahead. Yeah, I was like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> and so I was like, "Oh, really?" And they go, "Yeah, you know, the Romans," and I'm like, "Yeah, the Romans liked the good time, but they were persecuting Christians for the longest time." Yeah, I mean, I mean you know, and they were like, "Oh, talking my Constantine, all this stuff," and eventually, I don't know what happened; it became a blur. But normally, as a professor, I try to keep even kill. Mm-hmm. But I went from like zero to 100 and ranting and raving about. Well, what really got me is I said, Oh, what book? Because if you show me, if you tell me the book, mm-hmm. I'm going to buy the book. Hell, I'll buy the whole class the books so we can analyze this book because I really want to know how Christianity is promoting homosexuality. And they were like, Oh, we watched a video. And- on YouTube? <laughs> yeah, on YouTube. That's the thing about the uh, professor. Wow. They would show YouTube videos, just random things. And I just went ballistic, and I just rant and raved about don't ever come in my class. You can't support your stuff. We should mention, because I didn't
0: really know this until I started going higher in my studies, that... You know, a good part of history, legitimate history, is source material. Mm-hmm. Speculation is really frowned upon, and yeah. this is all speculation. Yeah. There's no source material, there's no... No, okay.
1: no, it was a video. I mean, you and I could make a video and yeah. say... You we know, should. Yeah, I <laughs> mean, Just get something started. Yeah, I mean, I might just do some of the Smurfs as part of the Illuminati, <laughs> you know, that used, you know... I think they are. Papa Smurf is the cult leader. And, yeah, exactly, yeah. you know. So you confronted him about this. Not it, to confront him because, you know, he's like, he's stuck in his way. He's got tenure. You know, I'm just an adjunct, so he's a tenure. So, I mean, he can show up and he can show up and like, you know, naked from the waist down and, Mm -hmm. you know, do whatever. You know, because kids, it's a time for self-discovery. So when they come to college, they try to figure out what have you. For me personally, I was not like the cool professor. Um, I didn't come because when they hear black studies, they think a guy's going to be coming up and a dashiki, ranting, ranting, (laughs) and screaming. (laughs) And the one thing I did do, I cannibalized a lot of the syllabies from different Ivy League schools. Mm-hmm. And I didn't tell the students. I just cannibalized certain ones and combined it and did whatever. And then, of course, towards the end, because a lot of kids had come in because the university that I was at was, you know, not known, stellar for academics. But once they're done, I would tell them that, you know, basically you were doing Harvard-Yale caliber work because this is what this is based on.
0: Can I tell, tell you something? I don't even remember there was a woman over at Fisk. We were talking about involving me in transferring some of these old black 78s mm-hmm. to, to digital. And in the process of that, it came up that I knew you or that's how she got my name. And she uh, went on two, two or three lines about your integrity. Mm-hmm. And so
1: I always meant to tell you, I don't know if I did, maybe no, I did no. already.
0: Uh, yeah, so... Whatever you were doing, you were doing the right thing. So just yeah, cool. people were noticing. Okay.
1: That's cool. Yeah, no, it's just that, you know. And yeah, and the one thing when I would start my class off, I would say the paradox is we're all African and we're not. And uh, I would tell them that if we were not of the same race, our same species, we couldn't procreate. Uh, because nature has a fail safe. You're going to be born sterile. Nature's like, nope, it happened once. My apologies. We're not going to happen. The platypus, on the other hand... That was God. Maybe he was, like, eating some magic mushrooms. I don't know because, you know, it's a mammal that lays eggs. Right. I don't get it. And then, of course, I would pull up my, because I did 23 me and I'd pull up my genetic, which show that, you know, my makeup, you know, and it's like, see, you know, I'm 74% African, and, of course, it breaks down from whatever. And then, you know, I got European and so forth and so forth. And I said, if we were different species, this wouldn't have happened. As well as we can be able to give blood to one another. It's and almost a repeat of what, again, the, the southern
0: plantation owners were saying about it, them being a separate species. You know, mm-hmm. It's really funny and ironic how some of the same arguments, you could just change the names and they would be the same thing. Oh yeah,
1: and, and the thing about the southern plantation owners is that they knew, but I think to deal with their guilt. Mm-hmm. But in, in turn, to be a devil's advocate, if you think that this person is another species... A beast, if you would, why are you procreating with that? Right. So you're performing a thing of bestiality, mm-hmm. so to speak. It's like Thomas Jefferson, when they said they would go to his plantation, you would have all these red-headed slaves running around. Right, right. And they were like looking at Thomas going, uh, huh. you know, yeah. uh, yay yeah, man, you know, <laughs> we're not gonna tell you what not to do, Yeah. but this is a little obvious, man. Right. You, know, you know, this is like Redhead kid with fret. Come on, man. Yeah, come on. He looks just like you. Yeah,
0: he winks at Sally. Hey.
1: Yeah, you know, so... Uh, hey, go ahead. <laughs> but, uh, so
0: with the incident, were students kind of taking sides? I mean, if you were kind of like, I don't want to say dissing this guy in your classes, but you at least are trying to point a more logical point
1: of view. They didn't really confront me, but a lot of times they just kind of, they just gravitate towards him because he's more polarizing, which... You know, fine. When you're young and zealous, I've I, i I've gotten
0: sucked into those things, too. I'd assume what you were saying was getting back to him.
1: Yeah, he knew. But, you know, and of course, that's why I'm pretty much not there. He, the thing about it is the lady brought in. I looked at her resume, and it was one page, and it was some weird gobbledygook. And here I am. I had, I had four pages, mostly all academic, more community development. But she wound up getting full-time adjunct. But, you know, hey at one time they had this one class about studying the black male and it was between me and that other lady. They let her teach the class. And I'm like, wait a minute. You know, nothing against her. Right. But if you want to talk about blackmail, you would have to have somebody in there who's a black male. Yeah. You know, it's like me teaching a class about being a white male. I can't you can right. read the source with material. <laughs> right. But it'd be kind of, you know, not honest. Right. Uh, because I really never lived that life. So eventually you got pushed out. Yeah, I got pushed out, which was fine. I mean, they called me back one time because that same professor decided to retire at the drop of a dime. And they called me, hey, you know, we could bring you, you could teach five classes. And it was like all over the board. I got one class on Monday, Wednesday, another class on Tuesday, Thursday, and two night classes. on. It was like all over the board. And I said, "Uh, no, I will do the night classes. That's it. I get in one class, three hours that night, that's fine. Because there's no non-traditional students. I'll deal with that. But they're like, ooh, but you'll be like teaching five classes like a real professor. And I'm like, well, are you going to make me a real professor? Mm-hmm. If not, then... You were just going to be like a stopgap? Yeah, stopgap, tell they bring somebody else in. That's not nice. And, and so I was like, nah, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I mean... You want to get back into that eventually, right? Um, actually, you know, now I work in a prison, and I actually kind of see you're a librarian right i'm a librarian in a prison and i to be honest i actually see that there is more of a need for programming especially for young black men mm-hmm. because here in tennessee uh, for example they found out that 100 um, percent of the in school out of school and expulsions in elementary school are arrest were black boys which that really doesn't make sense something's odd about those numbers not like Forty percent, sixty mm-hmm. percent—you know—those kids are on the precipice of like being developed. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, when they start, you know, because I was a truancy officer, things like that. And you can start seeing when a kid gets tagged that the moment you keep telling a kid he's bad, you keep hammering him over and over again, he start going to be—he's just going to give up, and he's going to condition himself to think what right. that. And you know, and that becomes the prison the school pipeline because a lot of them gravitate towards this perversion of. You know, I don't even consider them gangsters. They're more like thugs. And that's not to the benefit of the doubt, because there's other things that happen, too, in their life. But for the most part, a lot of it's classical conditioning. And they'll come to the prisons just years of institutionalization of some sort. And not in a good way. And unfortunately, they're like 18, 19, what have you. They'll try to do other programs in the prison, but they've never been deprogrammed so to speak or they never got they never, those demons never been exercised, so to speak you know I see a need before you actually start sending these guys to other programs there should be like a buffer zone right. to work on whatever internally is going on with them you, see, you feel like you're better suited for that and um, you're doing more good yeah yeah I mean I, you know that to be funny but I got a captured audience so to speak well, yeah, that's true, yeah. you know, that's true the, and there's
0: something we and this comes up a lot about you know if people are full of pride and arrogance they're not gonna learn anything but when they've been broken i hate that that's the reality of the human condition they're more open to like correction and learning things you know when you think you know it
1: all you're not gonna learn anything oh definitely you know and you know being in a prison i mean i actually got you know i actually see the guys almost every day i get to talk to them kind of make a difference so to mm-hmm. speak you know and the one thing that's really interesting is that shaking their hands because mm-hmm. um, a lot of times it'd be a fist bump you know a lot of mm-hmm. guys want to do fist bumps mm-hmm. and everything else because they would think that they're unclean or whatever the, the mm-hmm. thing is when i would start shaking their hands it would throw them off because mm-hmm. sometimes i'll be leaving the library and i'll reach out my hand to shake and they would hand me their books to search <laughs> <laughs> and it's like uh. i don't i'm like i don't care about this yeah. uh I just want to shake your hand. Yeah. And they're like, oh. So the sad thing is, there was one kid who was in the same graduating class as my second oldest son. Um, then there was another kid I was with, who actually I worked with when he was at the Boys and Girls Club. Smartest kid you can ever imagine. Nice kid, but now he's in prison. You know, and actually I saw his mom as I was leaving and uh, gave her a hug and everything. And I just told her, I mean, make sure you tell your son to come visit me in the library. Because he'll come every What was morning. the end for, it? Probably like, I think he's more of a follower one a few times he did come to the library we had a normal conversation but then when when one of his peers come in all of a sudden his vernacular change his demeanor change he goes yo yo man i had to smash a you know and it's just like yeah who is this kid all right it's like it's good that you can code switch yeah i give you an a on that one <laughs>
0: yeah but
1: something's not right you go from talking like Tommy in the suburbs to talking like Tommy that grew up in some the bad 90s Um, Inner City movies that came out.
0: Recommend a book if
1: someone is interested in black history. Uh, Man, if you look around and see all my books... Actually, interesting enough, I tell every young black person to read The Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, Mm -hmm. only because it kind of gives you a perception of being black in America and sometimes being seen and not being seen. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of like you're that annoying spook that everybody has to deal with, so to speak. And also the way we interact with one another as well as interact with other cultures outside of our neighborhood and things like that and the perceptions um, that's one book that I would always tell people to read. There's a part in it. I don't know if you ever read the book, but there's a part in it where the guy gets a scholarship. What happens is that he's supposed to go to this event to speak, get the scholarship from these you know white businessmen, and they put him in a smoker where these young black men have to fight each other. Apparently, that was a thing at the time, hmm. which I had no idea. Um, he goes to a school which is based on loosely based on Tuskegee, but he's not talking highly about it. He's talking about there's certain issues that they have and then like the certain dances they have to put on for the white donors and what have you. And just his whole progress, even when he deals with the Brotherhood, which is another name for the communism, even though they say we want unity, they still use black folks as fodder for their own thing. I mean, it sounds good. Um, same what happened with uh, Paul Robeson. He was actually good friends with W.B. Du Bois and they actually talked on first-name basis.
0: Yeah, that's a whole other topic about the, you know, the Soviets using black folks in America oh, yeah. for their own
1: uses. Uh, and, uh, which yeah. I get, you know, because, you know, the same as the Nation of Islam, because mm-hmm. it was formed in, you know, the early 1900s. So if you said white folks were the devil, most came from the South. I understand. Yeah, that's, I that's mean, what sounds about right. <laughs> I mean, you got enough <laughs> documented facts. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, but Invisible Man kind of helps individuals understand in an indirect way about interacting with one another. And I read that book like every year.
0: If you'd like to reach out to Mr. McClellan, you can find him on Instagram or Facebook. And if you're interested in more black history, you might check out In the Corner Back by the Woodpile episodes 143 with Tennessee State Representative Michael Sparks, or 120, where we get a private tour of Frederick Douglass' home in Washington, D.C., Or 62, with Miss Hattie Bruce, her father having been born into slavery, and she telling about her humble upbringing in rural Williamson County, Tennessee. In the corner, Back by the Woodpile, it's produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by looking up Spun Counter Guy. If you want to say hi or send us nasty words, you can email us at Spun Counter Guy at hotmail.com. And you can find this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and podbean.com. We'll see you on the flip side.